0: Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology, and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 33. The SWIFT Network is a good one to think about, right? The SWIFT Network made it easy for banks to interact with each other on a trusted basis everybody doing elements of digitization, but doing it to their own standards and capabilities. And therefore you basically create electronic repositories of information, which often look different depending on who's doing it and where it's being done.
1: I'm Dipesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. Now trade finance is one of the oldest forms of finance in history and trade really underpins the evolution of mankind. And with trade comes trust, and with trust comes third parties. Moving forward from IOUs and promises written on clay tablets thousands of years ago to today's interconnected world of trade, I want to question how far the industry has really gotten to in terms of innovation and true digitalization. So buzzwords aside, I'm joined by a world-renowned expert in trade and trade finance, BCG Sukhand Ramachandran. Sukhand is a leading expert in technological trends, as well as the complexities and nuances of cross-border trade, trade finance, and also payments. Sukhand, thank you very much for joining us on Trade Finance Talks. So quick fire elevator pitch, Sukhand, who are you, where are you from, and what do you do?
0: I'm Sukhand, I'm originally from India, a senior partner in London at the Boston Consulting Group and i do a lot of stuff as you said around trade
1: so i'm going to start with a challenging statement according to research trade finance originates from babylonian clay tablets dated around 3000 bc these constitute some of the first examples of prom notes and letters of credit since then we've moved over to paper documents possibly to excel documents But we haven't seen any real examples of full end-to-end automation and digitalization. I don't think we've progressed much in trade finance since Clay Tablets. Do you agree? Well, I'll agree and disagree in the same
0: sentence, I would say. I think there are enough examples of transactions on a global end-to-end basis, which are now on newer technology. I think it's, uh, if you look at even the FT headlines, the many banks which have quoted that they have done single transactions or a handful of transactions on, what was the buzzword five years ago, blockchain, (laughs) and achieved that purely digitally in some sense. Now, is that fully digital? Debatable, because obviously their internal processing systems are not fully plugged into this blockchain ecosystem. So I'm sure there are a lot of people who have done post-trade activities manually in that particular, even single examples. Now, where I agree is it's still very face-to-face. It's still very manual. It's still very judgmental based on humans. As you said right at the beginning, you know, the genesis of trade was very much around trust and face-to-face interactions between merchants and moneylenders to an extent. I think some of that still exists today. Globalization spend meant that the face-to-face doesn't necessarily need to be proximate. It could be on trust-based networks and using videos and other digital communication forms. But the level of trust is dependent on levels of interaction. So that hasn't changed.
1: How come, and according to the recent article on The Economist, trade credit requires the exchange of some 36 original documents and 240 copies on average per transaction and Each of the 27 parties approximately involved spent hours, if not days, fact-finding and form-filling? I think it's partly a function of globalization. I guess if you go back to
0: the Babylonian world, it was all about sort of being on the silk route or whatever trade networks that you were part of. It was much more concentrated. Now, if you think about the fact that we have 200 different UN estimates of geographies, countries, legal jurisdictions, whatever you want to call it, each with different levels of exports and imports, and a lot of it happening also domestically in large geographies where trust isn't there between the buyer and seller to the fullest extent. What I mean by that is I believe that I can give you the money or give you an order, you will deliver what you promise at some point in time in the future to the right quality, to the right quantity. That level of trust, wherever there is a risk around that, there is a role in some form or shape of trade finance providers being in the middle. The more global it is, the more participants there are. There may be garment customs regulators. There might be insurance companies. There will be shippers. There may be multiple shippers, freight forwarders involved. So globalizations meant that the number of parties has quite exponentially expanded. That's why you see the complexity. It's a simple domestic transaction between. I'm just going to make it up, right? Between Levant and some other part of southern Nile, which may have been where the original transactions happened, that may not have involved that many parties. There must be a merchant who transports goods. There's somebody who buys, somebody who sells. Now it can go from, I don't know, a Chilean background to deep interior China, and it passes through three or four middlemen to make sure the trust equation works. And then you have different parties who are playing the trust transitions
1: between the buyer and the seller. So I guess- a mixture of both trust and the nature of the complexity of global supply chains today. And I was at the WTO public forum in Geneva a couple of months ago and our UK delegation, so it included representation from Lloyds, ICC UK Standard Chartered, they presented one of your diagrams which showed the complex web of different documents, silos and products involved with trading a product or service from one place to another. So I guess two questions here. How does our industry untangle this mess? And also how are individuals incentivized to digitalize trade finance as an industry to make it simpler?
0: Well, I'm glad at least they they put that up there because when we did that, whenever it was a year or two ago, it was really about step one of what you're asking for. How do you unravel this is to first acknowledge the complexity that we live in. Mm-hmm. I think we, we did that exercise working with Swift and some of our clients to make sure that the uh, there is something, it's a common currency of understanding of the levels of complexity. In a way, it was unbiased. It wasn't trying to say it's somebody's fault. It's just saying this is the facts on the table. Step one of untangling anything is just awareness. Step two of that is to say then who are the parties who contribute to the complexity and then how can they reduce the complexity and how do they make the interactions easier. Now, part of that is making sure that we have better standards, better understanding of the key critical data elements required to engender trust. And then how do we make sure that the parties who need the relevant data elements get that and not the unnecessary extra, which always happens when you flow through documents? A lot of that superfluousness comes about mainly because it's physical documents in totality flowing through the system, where each party has a need for a small subset of information in those documents, but they copy it just in case somebody refers to it again. So that's why you get the cascaded effect of lots of information flowing through of which only a very small proportion is relevant and useful. And so first is acknowledgement. The second is to make sure that everybody knows which party needs which critical pieces of information and then finding a mechanism by which you can actually access that simply. So again, in that paper, we refer to the fact that it wouldn't it be nice, again, it was slightly futuristic, saying if somebody had something called an information fabric, we wanted a neutral term, which I believe one of the technology players now uses quite actively, an information fabric where all the data elements are available on subscription for any party who's interested and on a permission basis, whoever owns the data makes it available. And if you think about a feature like that where the data is accessible on a controlled basis for anybody who needs it and they add any other additional data elements onto the information fabric, you flip the problem from data moving in big chunks of paper, electronified or not, through the system to data stays in one place, you get in and out and using the data. That's a different model to think about. It's a bit out there, but ways to achieve it might be having some central parties which provide A, the data standards. And I'm glad to see that the ICC is starting to move on that basis, especially for their intention coming out of Singapore next year, defining the data standards. And once you have the data standards, I'm sure there'll be multiple providers willing to provide the information fabric as the backbone for information.
1: Yeah, interesting. And and potentially the, the ICC DSI project could provide that that data fabric layer which which could be could be very interesting. I guess I would still question what the fundamental business models are for the technology providers, the, the networks and the other ecosystems who are all kind of playing with, within that. So 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 interesting. I guess what are the biggest breakthroughs from both a bank and a corporate perspective in terms of removing some of those barriers and pain points for trade finance? The simplest thing is, again, if you go back to what we know and what exists, right, the
0: Swift network is a good one to think about, right? The Swift network made it easy for banks to interact with each other on a trusted basis and send messages to each other, which people could act on with absolute faith and trust, and had mechanisms for reparations or reconciliations if required, if something breaks in the process. I think what banks and corporates are moving towards is finding mechanisms for that cooperation through other means. Whether that's blockchain or not, that's just like a specific technology. The technology of today might be blockchain, the technology of tomorrow might be something else. For me, the critical thing is making sure that large institutions, which are critical nodes in the global trade ecosystem, are very clear about how they want to exchange data, make their data standards and capabilities available on a open basis, the more open standards we are about it, the more cooperative about it, the lesser friction for everybody involved. The counterforce here, interestingly, though, is if you're the largest player and you make it open, you feel, there's a fear that you suddenly become disintermediated. And I think that's the trade-off that everybody is going through. Do I want disinter- disintermediation? where a smaller bank operating in a very small geography can interact directly with another smaller bank or another corporate in another end of the geography without the need for some of these large players to be the intermediaries my view on that one is you will still be relevant as long as you're adding value if you think you're trying to protect a niche which is not adding value at some point in time it'll get destroyed anyway so minds will really occupy the spaces where you add
1: value it's interesting you talk about that disintermediation from the small player side. So I was at the World Trade Symposium a couple of weeks ago out in New York. And, and I guess that big piece around the two big global powerhouses, US and China, and now potentially in talks about splitting up the internet and actually controlling a larger proportion of their own data. So I guess I question that, that sharing model. What about whether it be the biggest banks in the world or the biggest countries in the world, not wanting to share that data, which is ultimately that, that power to control perhaps some of the trade flows, etc.
0: By the way, it's not just China and the US, right? So data protection has been there and data localization laws have been there in many countries for long periods of time. It reduces one element of friction, but digitization of data changes the dynamic a little bit, right? All, all that happens is now I'll have two electronic copies of the same data, one in China, one in the US, one in Indonesia, one in India, one in somewhere else, right? If you're a party, you will just keep a local copy of it and then transfer a copy of that, which may be stored locally somewhere else as well. So you may need to refine the idea of one common singular information fabric into a, an alternative model, which says there's an information fabric which may have localized copies, of local information, but connected through same common standards onto some global network. It's just
1: ways to make it work. And actually, what I what I would say is happening right now, and and I think you referred to it in, in your paper, is the digital island effect. So, what is the digital island effect, and and what's happening within this industry right now? I think
0: well, there is no standard definition of a digital island effect, but the way to, it, it's a metaphor in a way to think about everybody doing elements of digitization, but doing it to their own standards and capabilities, and therefore you basically create electronic repositories of information which often look different depending on who's doing it and where it's being done. If you then contrast that to that futuristic vision we had of an information fabric where it is one common data standard, one data repository Controlled access, because trust matters. The digital islands are kind of a different model in a way, and we need to find how do you get from those digital islands to a more interconnected set of data transitions. My sense is there are two different views of the world. Different people will subscribe to different solutions.
1: Very interesting. So in 14 minutes, we've gone from the history of trade finance, from the, the IOUs on on the, uh, on the clay tablets to potentially the Excel and the information stored, the digital islands, and, and potentially this futuristic view of that digital fabric, that layer. So we're coming to the end of 2019 and what a year it's been. I'd like to ask for your crystal ball now, and let's take 2020 to start off with, and you're not allowed to use the, the, the B words, Brexit blockchain or trade wars to make this a little bit more exciting. What are your predictions for trade and trade finance in 2020? It's a difficult one, I guess.
0: I wish I had the crystal ball, but I would say we will see more positive momentum. And I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about some of the ICC initiatives and some of the work that the SWIFT is doing in terms of driving commonality and standards across the participants in the trade network. I would expect some of the work being done by the ADB towards making trade-related financing accessible to SMEs starting to bear fruit in multiple geographies. That'll help. Africa will get on the map even more. I think there is a lot more activity happening in Africa. So I think I would say, if you think about global trade, with the exception of a handful of players, Africa is the sort of forgotten continent. I think it's coming more and more mainstream. So notwithstanding the words I'm not allowed to speak at, I think there is more globalization, more interconnectedness. And yes, we will have to work our way through the frictions,
1: which are the 21st century frictions. And do you think we'll see any either consolidation or failures within some of the technology initiatives that are going on right now?
0: There are quite a lot of initiatives going on and everybody doing their own thing. So yes, there, it's the natural state of evolution of digital activities, right? That some, some of them will not succeed. Some standards will become the de facto standard for the whole industry. That's the natural state of evolution of anything digital. Yes, there will be consolidations. Yes, there will be
1: successes. Yes, there will be some which will you know, die a quiet death. Essentially on that, that disillusionment phase of the uh of the Gartner hype cycle there. So it's been a pleasure having you today on Trade Finance Talks, and thank you very much for sharing your views on, on that digitalization aspect and the, the digital fabric future view of what the industry could look like and also for your predictions for 2020. Thank you for coming. Thanks, Libesh.
0: Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at
1: tradefinanceglobal.com.